But for the time being, will you do this? Pull out your Bible with me, and we continue this morning in our series in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We're, we're working our way through the last verses, 18 to 32 of chapter 1. And here's what I want you to know. Today, my, my message is really built around two convictions, okay? The first conviction is that now more than ever, we need to be talking about sexuality in the church. And my second conviction is that now more than ever, it is really difficult, almost impossible to talk about sexuality in the church. But we need to do it, even though it's difficult. We need to talk about sexuality in here because everyone else is talking about it out there constantly, okay? If we don't talk openly in here about issues related to the purpose of sexuality, issues related to homosexuality, issues related to gender, all of these complex issues, if we don't talk about that in here, that would make this place the only place that's not weighing in on the issue. And that's a problem. The conversation's constantly happening out there, and not only is, it, not only is everyone talking about sexuality, they're talking about a topic for which there is constant and rapid change in how we think about sexuality, how we express sexuality. Nothing is changing more quickly in our culture than our views on sexuality. The change is happening so rapidly that a lot of people feel like, I cannot keep up with the vernacular. I cannot keep up with what people are talking about. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I feel that way sometimes. In his essay, The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction, Henry Greeley describes what he believes will be the next wave of the sexual revolution in the West. It's a bit of a prophetic piece. And basically what he claims is that sex will become almost entirely disconnected from procreation, from reproduction. He writes, within 20, maybe 40 years, most people in developed countries will stop having sex for the purpose of reproduction. Instead, because of technologies now available to us that we are in the process of mastering, prospective parents will be told as much as they wish to know about the genetic makeup of dozens of embryos, and they will pick one or two for implantation, gestation, and birth. This will become... Safe, this will become lawful, it will be free. And you say, well, Pastor, that's already kind of happening. And you're right, IVF is a technology that we have. But the difference is that through the mastering of IVF and through the mastering of genetic manipulation, doctors will be able to create multiple embryos outside of the womb. They'll create embryos and they will be able to eliminate through genetic manipulation almost every form of possible disability. They will be able to predict genetically what a child will look like. It's the term we use is transhumanism, the ability to actually manipulate the genetic makeup of a future human being outside of the womb. That science is available to us now, and now we have the science to actually implant a baby from from 
conception all the way to birth without an actual human womb, using an artificial womb, a process called ectogenesis. And you say, why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this because the future of the way we think about sexuality will be a future where for many people, they will no longer even associate sex with procreation. Think about this. For the vast majority of human history, every single human being knew, if I have sex with that person, there's a high chance we will create human life. That dynamic, that risk, that possibility will, be, will go away. Think of it as the third wave of the sexual revolution. Sex will be almost entirely about pleasure and have very little to do with procreation. And it's the third wave of many waves. Many of you have lived through wave after wave of sexual revolution. Those of you who grew up in the 60s, you saw the free love movement, which was a movement really about separating sex from marriage, from from the repression of religion and tradition and pre-Freudian superstition. And you watched all this. Think Woodstock. Think Bob Dylan, all right? Think, you know, all that. It was really about this viewing religion and tradition as oppressive and the goal was to free sexuality from all of that where where sex could just happen freely for all people. And then we went through a a second sexual revolution in the 80s and 90s where in essence sex was severed from the male and female binary. This was the fight for the legalization of gay marriage and it was really a fight to free our culture from strict forms of male and female, and we've been through that whole sexual revolution. Just so much change. And now you think, well, maybe, maybe after all that changed, maybe the sexual revolution will come to an end. No way. It will just keep changing and changing and changing. Many social scientists say that there will come a day where, as a human species, we will sever sex from another human being. And I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm talking about actual, you'll no longer need another human being for intercourse. Because through human technology, through artificial intelligence, through advancements in robotics, our society will be able to create a situation where someone can have sex with a robot. You say, my pastor's talking about sex robots right now in church, all right? The only reason I'm talking about this is because it's being talked about out there. We have to talk about it. We've got to talk about this stuff in the church. The second reason we have to talk about this is because the Bible talks about sexuality constantly. Try to find a letter that Paul wrote where he does not at some point apply the gospel to human sexuality. You will not be able to find a letter. Over and over, Paul says, we've got to talk about this. In the book that we're currently preaching through, the book of Romans, sexuality plays a central role in Paul's argument. Will you turn now to Romans 1? You cannot understand Romans 1 without understanding what Paul does with the issue of sexuality. It's the centerpiece of his argument. Let me just read for you again the text that we studied last last Sunday, starting in verse 21, Romans 1, verse 21. 21, Paul says, for although they knew God, stop, let me just remind you, Paul's argument has been, everyone knows God. God has revealed himself clearly. 
in nature. His divine attributes have been clearly perceived. Everyone sees them. Everyone knows there is a creator. But Paul says in unrighteousness, we suppress that truth because it's an inconvenient truth. We don't want there to be a creator who lords over us. So in 21, the verse I just read, Paul says, for although they knew God, everyone knows God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Remember last week we talked about this whole idea of the exchange that we make. We exchange the glory of the true God and what do we do? We create a God of our own making, a God that we can control. We still want to be spiritual. Humans are incurably religious. But we want to be the center, so we create gods that we can control. Instead of worshiping the creator, look what Paul says, we worship the created. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul continues, verse 26. And I told you last week, this is the, these are the verses that are controversial. These are the verses that are delicate today to talk about. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And if you were here last Sunday, you know that I took a lot of time to, at the end of the sermon, to break down the logic of those verses. So what I, what I want to say is, if, you have, if you've shown up this Sunday and you weren't here last Sunday... I need to sort of apologize to you. I am not going to be able to do all of the work that I did last week. That's why it took last week to do all that work. So you'll have to, you're going to be like, well, how could you just drop that verse on us, buddy? I explained those verses last Sunday and took some time with them. And you just need to go back and listen. But what my point today is to say, notice the role that sexuality plays in Paul's argument. Paul's describing a society at a 50,000 foot level, a society that has essentially said, we refuse to acknowledge you as God. And Paul says, how does God respond to that? God says, he gives them over. He says, okay, I will, I will not force you. I will allow you to go your own Way. And what Paul describes then is a downward spiral into immorality and dysfunction and brokenness. And this is the condition of our world. But did you notice verse 24, domino number one that falls in human society when we turn our back on God is a domino related to sexuality. 
Paul doesn't even begin with homosexuality. He just says that you got to first think about sexuality. That, for whatever reason, the way we think about sexuality, the way we express our sexuality, the way we work out sexuality, that is the first thing that gets distorted when people turn their backs on God. You say, why is that, Pastor? I, I don't know. All I know is I've never met a single human being who would argue that our world is sexually healthy, <laughs> okay? Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm gonna make an argument for why I think our world is the most sexually healthy place. No one, no one at the core disagrees with Romans 1. Every person would say, our world is pretty broken sexually. I mean, it's like there's trauma, the Me Too movement, there's abuse. I mean, there are lots of problems in our world sexually. And it's true. And it's true. But what I said last Sunday was what Paul does in this argument is he does say that same-sex sexual activity falls outside of God's design and God's plan for human thriving. Think of this as what I'm gonna be calling the historic Christian view of sexuality. And this is the view that we hold at River West Church. But what I said last Sunday was, now look, that's not even, that's not even close to everything that we need to say about this discussion. We have so much to unpack together, so much to talk about. Yes, we hold the, the historic Christian view, the view that I would argue is the most faithful to the teaching of scripture. But there's so much that must be said about that conversation so that it's said with grace and humility and kindness towards other people. And the very first thing that we have to do this morning is we have to ask and answer the question, why has it become almost impossible to talk about this in our culture? Why is it so hard? Even right now, I'm looking out, and you guys look freaked out right now, okay? You look so tense. You're going to have to go to a masseuse later and get a shoulder massage. Like, what's he going to do next? I promise you, I'm not here to freak you out. Just everybody take a, take a deep breath, okay? All right? Why is it so hard to talk about sexuality? I'm going to give you five words. Five words. These five words describe, in my mind, the five reasons why it's so challenging to have this conversation. I'm gonna put them up so you can see them. Here's the five words. Embarrassment, sound bites, hurt, sin, and war. Embarrassment, sound bites, hurt, sin, and war. And what I mean by war, and I'll unpack this more, I'm talking about culture war. I'm saying we are the products of a culture war. And when you are the product of war, war changes the way you view other people, especially your opponent. And it changes the way you talk, the kind of language you use. Embarrassment, sound bites, hurt, sin, and war. Let's work through these. Embarrassment. Some of you are already totally embarrassed. My pastor talked about sex robots. I am mortified, okay? You're embarrassed. Some of you are astonished. And if you are being totally honest, some of you are offended already. 
But the reality is most of what I've talked about, you read in your news feed last week. So why is it that you read it in the news, watch it on Netflix, or, or hear people talk about it at work, but then you come to church and the pastor addresses the issue from the pulpit, that's suddenly somehow offensive or improper? I grew up in a wonderful church in Salem, Oregon, an evangelical covenant church called Trinity Covenant. It was an amazing experience. I have only good things to say about my childhood church experience. But one thing I noticed in 18 years at Trinity Covenant Church, at no point did a pastor ever stand at the pulpit and talk about sexuality. The only person who talked to me about sex was my youth pastor, and I'm pretty sure he got chastised by the elder board for some of the stuff that he brought up with me, all right? But it was, it was helpful. And my, my guess is many of you, especially if you come from an older generation, you grew up in a church where no one ever and talked about this, and they thought they were being proper. They may have even thought they were being godly by avoiding open dialogue about this issue. And there's three problems with this. There's, I think I have a slide for this too, just so you can trace my argument. The first problem is to be embarrassed about sexuality. Is ex- That's not it, sorry. That's a different slide. <laughs> that comes later. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> okay, think about this. Here's three problems with this, with being embarrassed. Three problems with us being embarrassed to do what I'm doing right now. Number one, to be embarrassed about sexuality is explicitly unbiblical. Paul was not embarrassed, and he talked openly about very explicit things. Number two, to be embarrassed about sexuality encourages homophobia in the church. You say, how's that, pastor? How does embarrassment encourage homophobia? Well, first of all, whenever we're embarrassed, we laugh, and we usually laugh at someone else. And especially if you have, there we go, if you have a pastor who's embarrassed to talk about sexuality, what can happen is that pastor will take all of that nervous energy, and then when he does get to a passage that deals with something like homosexuality, he'll pour all of that embarrassment into statements that are unbiblically strong, hateful, even mean-spirited. Whereas if we were just able to talk openly on a regular basis about the issues related to human sexuality, it would, it would take away a lot of that. And we could have a freer dialogue, which we need to do. And then finally, to be embarrassed about sexuality creates a discipleship vacuum in which Christians are getting most of their worldview formation from culture, not Christ. And this is a problem. We cannot, as Christians, allow our worldview to be formed by our culture. We need our worldview, especially as it relates to sexuality, to be formed by this, by this. And so we need to talk about it. What does this say? So no more embarrassment, all right? In fact, I'm going to talk about sex every Sunday now. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. That's embarrassment. Sound bites. Honest talk about sexuality has become challenging because so much of the conversation is taking place on social media, bumper stickers, and yard signs. 144 characters or less, a bumper sticker or 
our little preview of the yard sign. Did you okay, put that back up? <laughs> How many of you seen this sign somewhere in our city, okay? Which is a worldview. This is basically someone saying, here's what I believe to be true about the world, and it's <clears throat> given to us in short, pithy statements put on a yard sign, okay? What happens is you're trying to give away ideas about very complex issues in tiny, tiny little phrases, and what happens is this turns into a debate where other people say, I don't agree with any of those. And then they put up their yard sign, okay? And I don't know if you've seen that yet. That happens more in the red states, okay? All right. All right. And then here's, okay, so then, sorry. Then I like this one. This is the one I want in mind. In this house, we believe that simplistic platitudes, trite tautologies, and semantically overloaded aphorisms are poor substitutes for respectful and complex discussion about complex issues. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Put that in my yard. No, don't. Don't do it. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. Sound bites require a plausibility structure in order to have any meaning. Did that sentence make sense? Let me explain it. You need an already established plausibility structure, a web. A plausibility structure is a web of beliefs and ideas that a society in general has already agreed upon in order for a really short statement, a soundbite, to resonate with people. If you walked into a room and there was a conversation happening and someone in that room made a statement like the following, well, God made Adam and Eve, not Bob and Steve. And then a bunch of people started laughing. By the way, I don't recommend that statement. I'm using that statement as an example of a soundbite that requires a plausibility structure for anyone in the room to laugh and think that it's a good statement. The reason, there's that, the reason that statement might land with one group and for another group go, that's terrible, has to do with the plausibility structure. If you walked into a room and someone said, love is love, and a lot of people went, yeah, totally, there's a plausibility structure behind that that makes that statement land with meaning, where people go, totally. But here's the point. Sound bites don't convince others of a position. Sound bites depend on a prior position in order to be coherent. And what you think about human sexuality has been formed more than you realize by plausibility structures. You're hearing arguments all the time out there. And I'm, what I want to do, especially is I want to address young, younger people, because younger people tend to navigate their world and form their worldview primarily through social media and the internet. And what I need to say to you younger people is there's a whole plausibility structure that's undergirding social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the internet, and that plausibility structure is never explained 
But statements get thrown out and everyone goes, that makes total sense. And the reason it makes sense is because there's already agreed upon pattern of beliefs and ideas. And you may not realize that you have been formed by that plausibility structure, even if that plausibility structure would never be recognized by Jesus or the writers in the New Testament. And so we just have to slow down and we need to talk. Christians, if we're going to honor Jesus, we have to pull out of the online debates. I don't want to find out that you are on Facebook fighting with people about really complex cultural issues with sound bites. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've never met anyone who said, you know, I changed my entire worldview because someone threw out a pithy soundbite on their Facebook account. I saw the light. (laughs) That does not happen, people. It doesn't happen. We've got to get out of that. And we need to slow down and we need to have deep, complex, nuanced conversations. This would be the moment to say amen, unless you think I'm just like, that's an amen moment. We're going to talk about these things. We're going to have a forum in February. On February 6th, we're going to have an entire forum where we're going to go deeper into the issue of sexuality as it relates to identity. Because we need to talk about this. And we need to talk about it with our Bibles open. You're going to find out more information about that. We're going to be offering a class for parents starting in February. Pastor Mike and Pastor Kathleen are going to offer a class for parents um, called Jesus, Jesus, Gender, and Sex. Jesus, Sex, and Gender. Did I get that right, Mike? Close enough. enough. (laughs) A class for parents because we need to talk about this, okay? Embarrassment, sound bites. Number three, hurt. Hurt. In his book, Purposeful Sexuality, Ed Shaw, who is a pastor in the UK, by the way, Ed Shaw also, he lives with same-sex attraction, but he's chosen the historic Christian position, so he, he is not engaging in that, that kind of sexuality, but he's a pastor, and he wrote a book called Purposeful Sexuality, and here's what he basically argues. He says, we all have uniquely damaged sexualities. We all have hurt of some kind. And the reason that matters is you're walking around with a wound of some kind. And then what happens is if you're already wounded, when you come into a space where somebody brings up the issue, that wound starts to hurt. You feel it. Maybe it's a wound of shame. Maybe it's a wound of a past trauma. But hurt makes it really difficult to remain open and be a part of a dialogue where you actually listen to another person. You probably hear people say in our culture all the time, it's just sex. Like, it's not, when did sex ever hurt anybody? It's just, it's just a physical, it's just a little bit of sex. And my, honestly, like, my answer to that is, it's, I try not to get mean-spirited at that moment, okay? My answer is, who has not been hurt by sex? Who doesn't have a wound related to sexuality? Whether that wound is trauma from being molested, 
trauma from being on the other end of infidelity, being cheated on. Trauma from, from sex outside of marriage. Trauma from the pain of assault. Trauma that's created by the use of pornography. Pain that happens in marriage through unmet expectations. Hurt, hurt, hurt. There's only one couple in the human, in the history of human life who for a brief moment had a sexual relationship untarnished from hurt and sin. Do you remember Genesis 2, 25? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the one moment where there was no hurt. No shame, no comparisons, no past experiences, no hurt from childhood, no comparisons. Adam wasn't thinking, I mean, you're pretty, but the last girl was a knockout, okay? (laughs) None of that was happening. Naked, unashamed. This is like the utopia of human sexuality. And now look at the very next verse. Now the serpent was more crafty. We go from utopian, hurt-free, no shame sexuality to our spiritual enemy who says, literally, hell no. I'm going to ruin this. And ever since, we've had hurt and we've had trauma. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I don't know everything about what that verse is teaching, but I know this. There is something about sexual sin that uniquely creates hurt, both in me and in others. So the other part of the hurt thing is how often if we're being honest we've hurt other people we've used sex in a way that's damaged someone else's life and then in the process of hurting someone else we then can often carry shame and hurt as well there's the pain created by body image think about the amount of pain in our culture created by our society's unrealistic expectations about what makes a human being sexually desirable. Think about this. So much hurt by this. Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist at New York University, has done extensive research on the impact of the internet on children. And what he's discovered is that Adolescent girls are disproportionately harmed by the internet way more than adolescent boys. This is fascinating. His whole argument is based on the fact that social media in particular is a, it's a platform that girls and boys experience in very different ways. So by the way, in general, boys, when boys go on the internet, they gravitate primarily to pornography, which is not good for them, for sure. 
Uh, but a lot of times when boys go on the internet they, internet, they gravitate towards gaming. And the interesting thing Jonathan Haidt has discovered is that boys, when they're gaming, they're actually continuing to build relationships with each other and they're, uh, they're working out all of their aggression and they're, and they're you know, forming relationships. And so in general, boys come away from online experiences with relatively positive experiences, whereas girls come out of online experiences with severe mental health issues. So Jonathan Haidt, is, he's tracked this from the 19, early 1990s all the way through the, our current day. They track mental health in kids. So depression, anxiety, self-harm, even hospitalizations as a result of self-harm. And what they noticed is that before 2010, now think about this, before 2010, boys and girls were tracking at a relatively flatline degree of mental health, depression, anxiety, self-harm, hospitalization. And then when you get to 2010, suddenly boys start to slightly go up and girls in those metrics shoot up like scary like think of a uh, like a, a, a snowboarding ramp it's like whoosh, girls harming themselves being hospitalized claiming that they're wrestling with severe depression what happened in 2010 what happened in two, by the time we got to 2010 not only were most of the social media platforms mainstream, but by 2010, we had placed into the hand of every child between the ages of 10 and 15 their own personal computer. And then you just see this. Girls are more invested in social media than boys are on average. Boys' photos typically focus on something they're doing, whereas girls' photos typically focus on how they look, and then they compare each other. Boys and girls are equally aggressive. It's just that boys, a boy will punch another boy. A girl will bully through words and criticism her counterpart. Boys post a wider range of things of their lived experience. This is great. If a boy and a girl both get sick and they both throw up, the boy will put a photo of his own vomit on Instagram. <laughs> I love that. The girl will not put a photo of her vomit on Instagram. She will get in bed, powder her face, and say, I'm, not, I'm feeling peckish today. And then she'll put out a photo that puts, portrays herself in the best positive light. Boys, I love this, boys often over estimate how amazing their lives are to other people. <laughs> and girls, on the other hand, are more ready to believe that other girls are having way more fun than they are. And so much of this is connected to body image. Body image. The hurt. And there's other kinds of hurt. Imagine if as a child you were growing up and at about the age of 10, 11, 12, while all of your friends were talking about attractions that they were having for the opposite sex, you started to realize that you were experiencing attractions for the same sex. 
And what we're discovering as we listen to the stories of people who begin to experience same-sex attraction is that that experience is almost always unwanted. So I don't know if you know this. It's almost always accompanied with pain, fear, shame. Children who don't yet have the language to articulate what they're experiencing, but they know they're different and they, and they worry. Story after story I've read and in interactions I've had with people where they say, when I had that moment, I would pray to God that those forms of attraction would be taken away from me. Pain. Now imagine you walk into a church carrying that and you hear a pastor up front being cavalier or mean-spirited when he addresses the issue of same-sex attraction. Folks, for many, many LGBTQ people, the most unsafe hour in America is Sunday morning. And so my point in all this is to say, it's not to say that we, we give up on the biblical view of sexuality. We can hold a biblical view, but we can hold it in a way where we don't increase the hurt, which is the kind of church that we're going to become. That's the kind of church we're going to become. Sin. Now, when I say sin, I'm, ta- I'm not talking right now about the sin of same-sex sexual activity. I'm talking about the sin committed against the gay community. That's what I want to talk about first. Because that's made this conversation so difficult. I can take you to the place where I was sitting when the news broke on October 6, 1998, that a young boy from Laramie, Wyoming named Matthew Shepard was robbed, pistol whipped, tortured, and tied to a barbed wire fence. Some of you remember this story. If you're younger, you don't. But I remember vividly. He was attacked, kidnapped, beaten, tortured. And as the news broke, the primary reason was because of his sexual orientation. He was, he was a young gay man, and he was tortured. At the memorial service, members of the Westboro Baptist Church showed up with signs that said things like, Matt is in hell and God hates fags. And I'm not saying any of this to be a sensationalist. I'm not saying any of this to make anyone feel bad. Here's my purpose for telling you this story. Imagine what would have happened in the United States in 1998 if Matthew Shepard was targeted in this way for being a Christian? What would have been the backlash? Imagine if Matthew Shepard had been targeted because he was a heterosexual and treated this way. What would have been the backlash? And so the whole point is to say uh, the sin that has happened around this issue, some of it's come from the church for sure, but in general, there's been a lot of sin. Before we even talk about 
the sin of same-sex sexual activity, we need to start and say, what about the sin that's been committed against a community of people that's been traumatizing? We need to think about the way we use words. An old saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. This is a terrible lie, right? In the words of the famous philosopher Albus Dumbledore, okay, that's a joke. Anyway, never mind. (laughs) Forget it. Albus Dumbledore, words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. It's obvious that we should not tell gay jokes or use horrible words. But it's also true that we should become more sensitive. We should become more aware of the way we use language. Are there things that we say in passing that could be a source of great hurt and harm to someone? And would we want to know about that? And so part of my goal over the next few weeks is to help us become more like Jesus in the way we use words. War, number five, war. It is not an overstatement to say that we have arrived at our current place as a society when it comes to sexuality through a violent, winner-takes-all culture war. We are the products of war. Okay. When you've been at war, your language and your view of your opponent is shaped by war imagery. War encourages you to villainize your opponent. It encourages you to dehumanize other people. And it encourages you to use language towards that end. And what I want to do for just a brief moment here is trace for you the history of the war that we've seen over the last 70 or so years in our society. So a bit of history. On June 28, 1969, New York police raided the Stonewall Inn, a popular gay bar in New York City. The raid was so violent that it resulted in six days of protest. And the uprisings ignited by that protest ignited a new atmosphere of militant gay liberation. A new generation of activists, organizations emerged, including the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance. These organizations sought to end discrimination against gays and lesbians by seeking recognition of the legitimacy of same-sex relationships and rights associated with those relationships. And what happened in that was that There was a ton of cultural pushback as different gay rights groups organized. The rest of the culture pushed back, including the formation on the other end of the cultural spectrum of another movement called the Moral Majority. Some of you lived through the 80s and you recognized the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority was a prominent American political 
political organization associated with the Christian right and the Republican Party. By the way, all I'm doing right now is reading stuff from Wikipedia, okay? I'm not, I'm not moralizing any of this yet. I'm just telling you the, the facts of what happened. And you can go verify all of this. I, I will say that I'm indebted to Al Mohler and Pastor John Tyson, who've done some really seminal work showing the relationships between these two groups. The moral majority, okay? Jerry Falwell's the name you'll recognize with the moral majority, the Republican right, and then on the other end, gay rights activists. And this created, folks, a full-on war. The Moral Majority was founded in 1979. It played a key role in the mobilization of conservative Christians as a political force, particularly in Republican presidential victories throughout the 1980s. But what I want you to know is that on both sides of this war, both groups had war room strategy sessions. They would get together. They would strategize. Both groups agreed upon rhetoric and strategy to win the war. On the moral majority side, they successfully campaigned to create an integrated social platform that appealed to most conservative Christians by packaging a variety of previously disparate issues under the banner of traditional family values. You might recognize that. Traditional family values. But in particular, they mobilized around anti-homosexual rhetoric that became more and more explicit as the movement gained in momentum. And some of you, if you lived this, you remember Jerry Falwell was pretty notorious for getting on news stations and saying some different kinds of things that were very anti-homosexual. For example, statements like, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, it's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Or... It was Falwell who said, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Or someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we don't act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way, and our nation will pay a terrible price. Statements like that. It's war rhetoric. And then on the other end of the spectrum, in response to this, there was a war conference of 175 leading gay activists representing organizations from across the land. They convened in Warrington, Virginia to establish a four-point agenda for the gay rights movement. After that meeting... Harvard-trained social scientist and gay activist Marshall Kirk and Hunter Masden wrote a manifesto mapping out a strategy for the gay rights movement to eradicate bigotry. And this strategy was recorded in a book called After the Ball. I think I have a picture of this book. Probably none of you have ever read this book, seen this book. For some reason, copies were were eliminated or destroyed. In order to get it on Amazon, you have to spend like a couple hundred dollars. But all this book is, is it's a, it's, a, it's a distillation of a strategy that the gay rights movement came up with. And they had a three-pronged strategy for how they were going to engage in the war. And that strategy involved the following, desensitize, jam, and then convert. 
I'm just telling you what's in this book, all right? Desensitize was basically the strategy to desensitize Americans to gay relationships. Use commercials, use sitcoms, do as much as you can to flood the airways and conversation with as much as you can about how um, homosexual relationships are normal and they're and they're even you know they're they're not scary they're not wicked they're and they had a whole strategy and it's outlined in this book and you could you can like backtrack and see how that strategy came through in media television sitcoms and then jam jam was the idea of jamming up all opposition using economic political and judicial means to silence and marginalize anyone who had a different view And then third, convert popular opinion, especially in the category of viewing this as sin. Now you say, Pastor, this is really fascinating history, okay? But please tell me, what does this have to do with our church? Friends, everything. You and I are products of a war that raged. And that war has shaped the way we think about this issue probably more than we're willing to admit. Maybe you think, I got all of my views from Scripture. Whatever, wherever you're at, that's just simply not true. We've come through a war. And we've been trained by war in the way we use language, the way we view other human beings. So important to understand this. On both sides, both sides caricature the other. Both sides have false assumptions that have not been thought through. I meet younger people who are either new to Christianity or they're not yet Christians, and they have terrible views about the church and what the church has done. And those views are not primarily formed by relationships with actual Christians. Those views are often formed by the media and the, and the rhetoric of the war that we've been through. And I meet and talk to Christians in particular, although this is not always true, Christians of the older generation who have views about this issue that have not primarily been formed by the Bible. They've been formed by the war. And I'm concerned about this because I think it's made it difficult for us to talk about it. As Cap Stewart once said, if you're fighting a culture war in the name of Jesus, you're already losing because Jesus is not a soldier. Jesus is a savior. He died for human sin. Paul's purpose in Romans was not to give Christians a clobber passage that we would walk around and beat up people with. His purpose in Romans is an invitation from God to repent of our sin, whatever that sin is. Last Sunday I said, find yourself in Romans 1. You're there. I can find myself there. The point of Romans 1 is not to target one group or one kind of sin. The point of Romans 1 is to level the playing field where we all recognize God, without your grace, I am without hope and without a possibility of eternal life. And then God says, yes, now let me invite you into a relationship by grace, through faith. 
the gift of righteousness. I've asked you to give me five sermons. And we have two more to go. And here's what we're going to do next Sunday. One of the things that's happened in this conversation is that we spend so much time talking about what we're against that we never actually slow down to explain what we're for. A compelling, beautiful vision of human sexuality as it's explained in Scripture, even in part starting in Romans 1. I'm going to show you the launch point is Romans 1. There's something beautiful. There's something magnificent. There's something compelling about God's vision for sexuality. And we need to explain what that is. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to worship together. Lord, we pause in this moment to think about Jesus, your example of grace and truth. I don't exactly know how you did it, Jesus. You had this way with people where you could hold truth, truth about reality and even truth about sin, truth about what falls outside of God's best. You could hold that position but do it in a way where people felt your grace. And we want to be like that, Jesus. We want to be that kind of a community. It's captured so beautifully in the communion moment. Truth and grace. Grace through your sacrifice, Jesus. You gave up your life for us, which we will celebrate in just a moment. But truth, the truth that sin is real, the truth that sin is, it requires sacrifice, the truth that sin must be paid for and how precious that truth is for us because without, without this moment, without your sacrifice, Jesus, we are hopeless. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for grace and truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the meal we're about to share together. And we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.